1: Bowman touch their hearts and convince them of the beauty, the value, the giftedness of black Catholics so that the church can truly be Catholic. We are the church. We are there to help promote us and our unity as one, as the body of Christ. Pope Francis
0: has encouraged the church to seek unity, not uniformity. So what does it mean to be a black Catholic? an African American or Caribbean Catholic, or a Catholic from Africa today? And who was Sister Thea Bowman? Father Maurice Nutt talks about it on Almost Good Catholics. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics. I'm your host, Chris Odeniets, and I get to ask interesting people who've thought about the big questions to share their conclusions, to explain what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this dialogue may help us approach the truth and to have a really great time doing it. If you'd like to join the conversation, please email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Our guest today is Father Maurice Nutt. Father Maurice, is a priest in the Redemptorist Congregation and holds a Doctor of Ministry degree in preaching from the Aquinas Institute of Theology in St. Louis, and two master's degrees, one in theology from Xavier University in New Orleans and one in divinity from the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. Father Maurice teaches courses in the Black Religious Experience, Christian Theology, Pentecostalism, preaching and evangelization. That includes Black preaching, liturgical preaching, and advanced preaching. He's also been director of the Institute for Black Catholic Studies at Xavier University. He's a consultant to the cause for canonization of Sister Thea Bowman, and he has published four books. The one that we'll be talking about today is his biography of his mentor, Sister Thea Bowman. The title is Thea Bowman, Faithful and Free. And his latest book, Down Deep in My Soul, an African-American Catholic Theology of Preaching, will come out later this year, and I hope Father Maurice will come back a second time to talk about that. So, Thank you so much for joining me this morning, Father Maurice. I really appreciate it.
1: Chris, I'm so happy to be with you on this great podcast, almost Catholic. I had never heard about it. So I'm so glad and excited that I met you and that we can have this conversation. I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased. So
0: tell us a bit about your life and your life's work as a redemptorist priest.
1: I've been a redemptorist for. 39 years this coming July, and I've been a priest for 33 years. Uh, I grew up in a Redemptorist parish in St. Louis, St. Alphonsus Lagori, better known as the Rock Church there, and the Redemptorists really had a great impact on me early in my life. I was um, about five years old. My father passed away, and uh, my mother was left to raise four boys by herself. Uh, the redemptress were really there as an inspiration and as somewhat as a spiritual father as well, you know. And I really appreciated having them in my life, and 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 so they helped me to um, grow in my faith. They showed a lot as far as being concerned about the people's uh, uh, justice. Their access to equality, good education, better housing. I saw this justice work happening with the Redemptorists in our community, and I was so attracted by that that I wanted to become one. So I've been a Redemptorist for 39 years, a priest for 33 years, and our call or our mission is to preach good news to the poor and most abandoned. We were founded in 1732 by St. Alphonsus Liguori, who was a doctor of the church patron of moral theologians and confessors. And we were called to go to places that no one else wants to go to, to bring good news. So he felt that the poor needed to hear good news just like anyone else. And so I'm so grateful to be a part of the Redemptorist congregation. I love my vocation, and I really love the Redemptorists.
0: Wow, that's very beautiful, and and so much like exactly what Jesus did. What kind of um, work did the, the the Redemptorist fathers do with you when you were a little kid, and what kind of work do you do?
1: Okay. So the Redemptorists, uh, I met them in parish ministry. They were the pastors and uh, working on the staff of my home church. Uh, by the way, that's St. Alphonsus Rock Church, which I later became the first African-American pastor at my mm. home parish. Um, what kind of work do I do? Well, as a Redemptorist, Uh, Currently, I am working as a full-time mission or revival or retreat preacher. I do all of those things. And in the spirit of our original charism, I go from city to city, preaching good news upon invitation to do parish missions, revivals, or retreats. Uh, I really, I love preaching. That's the heart and soul of, of my personal life, and it's at the heart of the soul of our Redemptress congregation. So most of my ministry is going around as Redemptress uh, preaching in various venues. Okay,
0: and I understand you also have a spiritual direction practice. Uh, what is that? Um, that's something I should say two weeks ago we talked over with uh, Bishop Hying in, in Milwaukee who's explaining spiritual direction, but we didn't really get into how it, how it works and uh, how does it work? What do
1: you do Well, first and foremost, spiritual direction is also a part of the Redemptor's Charism. St. Alphonsus believed that uh, helping people in their personal conscience to accompany them and to help them to work out whatever anxieties, worries, or just simple spiritual life issues. So spiritual direction uh, organically means that it is about accompaniment, that we as spiritual directors, we we sit with, we hold sacred space for those who come to us uh, and just want to talk about how God is working in their lives, their experiences of God, or, or sometimes their, their lack of experiencing God. And, and it's about attentive listening. Uh, a spiritual director, in part, should do more listening than talking. Uh, there, I use pretty much the evocative method of spiritual direction, which means I try to invoke some of the questions that uh, my client may have, and and then basically to help them answer their own issues. So I don't come, I'm not the shell answer man. I don't Mm -hmm. answer their questions. I don't try to fix things, but I dive deeper so that they can get to the heart of their issues and can come to some resolution uh, through their own pondering and and some questioning for myself. Is this
0: because you can't always see yourself You know, you need somebody from the outside to look at you and ask you helpful questions. Is it similar to a therapist or a very good friend, or is it something different entirely?
1: Well, therapy and spiritual direction are two very different practices. Um, But what it is, is mirroring. I like how you brought that up, is reflecting back. So uh, it's asking questions that qualify or clarify what people have said. And, and it helps them to hear what they're saying by reflecting back what they've said. And it moves them deeper into their own uh, healing, their own understanding and appreciation to, of the role of God in their lives. Uh, for me personally, um, in 2021, I opened up the Copiosa Care Practice here in New Orleans. Um, Copiosa is a word taken from the Latin uh, motto of the Redemptress, copiosa, I am redemptio. With the Lord or with Him, there is plentiful redemption. So, copiosa care means that uh, I aspire to bring plentiful care to the people that I hold sacred space with and sit with. If anyone of your listeners are interested, I do spiritual direction both personally one-on-one here in New Orleans, but I also do it uh, virtually. So if you're interested in, in checking me out, one of the things I do is I, I don't feel that I'm for everyone. So what I do is have an initial conversation to see if this is going to work prior to us entering into sessions. You can reach me at copiosa. that's spelled C-O-P-I-O-S-A, CARE all one word, copiosacare.org. Um, so if any of your listeners are interested, I would be helpful and, and, and try to listen to them. And hopefully I can be of assistance to them.
0: That is uh, wonderful. We'll, we will put that link um, in the text below the the episode. Is this for everybody? I mean, for example, I'm sure there's not enough ministers to go around given how many Catholics there are, or is this something like you get to a certain point in your spiritual development and you're like, shoot, I really need some help. Cause I don't know where the next step is.
1: Yes. It's for anyone. It's not just for priests or religious, it's for lay people. Um, I, am um, as African American priest. I, uh, Certainly, because that's my culture, I understand that. But uh, I am open to every ethnic group, uh, Catholics, and also non-Catholics. So th- it's not just a Catholic. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I'm ecumenical. It's anyone who wants to walk and be accompanied with as they journey in their own spiritual life with God.
0: Okay. Um and so this is a very interesting question, too, because you, you've been the director um, for the Institute of Black Catholic Studies, and you've also been the um, convener for a, an association of um, African-American and uh, Caribbean, Af- uh, Caribbean and uh, African um, Catholics who, who gather and talk things over. What does it mean, Black Catholic because uh, you know, I'm I'm Polish Catholic, and I've been to Polish Catholic church, but I mostly just go to the one in the neighborhood. You know, you can go to the Spanish mass or not, but there's something very special about the Black Catholic identity, and I'd I'd love for you to to spell it out
1: for us. As you know, and your listeners know, Chris, the word Catholic means universal. I truly believe, and I hear to the understanding that the church cannot truly be church without everyone. It means universal. It means everyone is welcome. Um, And when we say Black Catholics, we're doing no more than the Irish Catholics, the Italian Catholics, the German Catholics, the Polish Catholics who acknowledge their culture. Um, I look at my Catholicism as just like Jesus Christ being incarnate. It's incarnational, that we worship out of a certain persona of who we are, our culture, our, our experiences, our religious expressions. We all bring them to worship. When we go to mass, we bring it into how we think spiritually, how we theologize. And so to say Black Catholic is simply be all that richness of those of the African diaspora. We use the word Black because it's inclusive of Africans, uh, it's inclusive of Caribbean and African-Americans here in the United States. So, so it's important to understand that as Black Catholics, we worship a God who understands our God talk. It could be English or it could be Igbo if you're Nigerian. I, I, I want to say that God understands our lived experience, our cultural experience, because God self came into this world to become one with humanity being one with a certain and specific culture through Jesus Christ. So we express ourselves through our culture, and it makes us no less Roman Catholic. It's just various, I would like to say, contours or, or looking at it as different uh, experiences of Catholicism from a cultural perspective.
0: I think that's a very helpful answer. And we know that Saint Paul says, you know, you are all you're all one in Christ Jesus. Right. No Greek, no Jew, no male, no female. But we also know that when the Pentecost happened the apostles spoke every language. They didn't all speak one language. They all
1: spoke every language. And everyone understood them when they spoke all let, let me uh, expand upon, you asked me about the Institute for Black Catholic Studies. Um, it began in 1980 at Xavier University in New Orleans. Uh, Xavier University of Louisiana in New Orleans is the only African-American, uh, historically African-American, and Catholic university in the whole United States. So, uh there are other what we call HBCUs of other religious affiliation or state affiliation, but it's the only Catholic one. So, it was quite apropos that in 1980, uh Dr. Norman Francis who was the president of Xavier University at that time and uh the Black Catholic Clergy Caucus, especially Father Thaddeus Posey, who was a Capuchin, Franciscan Capuchin, uh, and Joseph Neron, who was a, a priest of the uh, Society of the Blessed Sacrament, they came to Dr. Francis with this proposal to have a institute of learning, of higher education, a master's degree, focused on the Black Catholic religious experience. And so this uh, wonderful institute was begun, and it is, is it gives you the core courses of, of Black Catholic theology, uh, history, psychology, looking at it from catechetical perspectives. It uses all these. It's it's an interdisciplinary uh, course that is offered both a degree program and a certificate enrichment program for those who do not wish to get their degree. in catechetics and youth ministry, uh, those are two of the uh, offerings we offer. Um, I, I myself am a graduate of the Institute for Black Catholic Studies. I was in the third graduating class. And, and this is when we had, I call our personal heroes of, of Black Catholicism, when Father Beat Abram were alive, Dr. Nathan Jones, uh, Doctor uh, Sister Dr. Thea Bowman, Servant of God, who we're going to mm-hmm. talk about a little bit later, as well as uh, people like um, we had... Uh, this Pat Haley sister Pat Haley, was a wonderful, wonderful community person, and Leon Henderson. All of these people were uh they all gave of their time to enrich those interested in black Catholic ministry it was It's an immersive experience It's three weeks out of the summer that mm-hmm. you come onto the campus of Xavier to learn the richness, the beauty, and the giftedness of Black Catholicism so you can go back as equipped and effective ministers into the Black Catholic community. And so it's not all African Americans. You don't have to be Black to go to the Institute of Black Catholic Studies. But if you have an appreciation of and a love for ministering with and for African Americans, it's a place of learning and enrichment that will help you be more effective ministers in the Black African community.
0: Um, I have two two questions about it, and you can pick either one. I'm just curious about the sort of the state of um, Black Catholic America and and how it looks. Looks to you today, and I've, I'll tell the listeners that I, I know Father Maurice through mutual friends of ours. We have mutual friends at St. Columba here in Oakland, which is a, a really amazing place, which is a um, uh, an African American congregation, but you know everybody is quite welcome. When I I used to go there before I had small kids, because uh, the the mass is quite long, <laughs> so when I had small kids, Thank I started going to a, another one. Um, closer to my parents' house. But it's a very beautiful place. Everybody is, feels completely welcome. You don't feel like Forrest Gump in the, uh, you know, in the choir there is, is like right, the, the right. white face. Um, and it is it is a place of great hospitality. But also, um, as it was explained to me when I first started going there, the people who settled in Oakland came out of New Orleans working on the railroad, and the railroad was finished because it hit the ocean, and then they settled in Oakland. And that's how the Catholics, um, the Black Catholics got to Oakland. Um, so that's my first question. And my second question is about African priests, because I've had quite a few African priests recently, as the vocation in America is sadly not where we need it to be. There's just not enough of us becoming priests. We are having more and more priests from, um, from abroad. And wh- what do you think about those two questions? And what do you think about where we are as a country?
1: Well, Chris, those are both excellent questions, and I I would answer them by simply saying that like the American Catholic Church, we are beginning to decline in numbers. Um, There are fewer going, many of our, I call it the graying of all of our United States Catholic parishes. Most of our parishes are occupied on Sunday morning by the elderly, the older, Mm -hmm. the the, the the wisdom figures so that that I respect who they are, but I don't see much of a future in the pews uh, and so that that troubles me and uh it's often said when white America catches a cold, black America gets uh pneumonia and <laughs> and I really do believe that because. Uh, our numbers are hemorrhaging. We are mm-hmm. losing many, many Black Catholics. And, and I don't even think the majority are, are going to other denominations. They're just not coming to church. Yeah. And you might say, why? Because I don't think their spiritual and cultural needs are being met uh, by the priests in most dioceses and religious orders that staff predominantly Black Catholic parishes. What do you mean, Father Maurice? I'm so glad I asked myself that question. <laughs> Because it's important to understand that many um, of our Black Catholics that go to Mass, yes, it's the Eucharist. Yes, it's the Word of God, you know, and and the liturgy. Yet we do not have effective preaching that happens. And when I say effective preaching, just dealing with the sacred text, You know, we'll hear about a priest's golf game or, or a movie they saw, And I'm just really, I'm infuriated when I sit in the pew sometimes, and I don't see the text treated. We as Black people are certainly biblical people, and we want to hear what thus says the Lord. We don't want Father's opinion. Break open that word and feed us. We're hungry. We need that sustenance. We need the word just as much as we need the sustenance of the Eucharist to feed us so that it's not just obligation. It's a necessity for us to be able to make it through the week. We need spiritual nourishment to get through the week. And sadly to say, Chris, that many times we go to mass and our folks, black, white, whatever culture, many of them are not being spiritually fed. Which is That's why we need preaching. Hands. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
0: Um, And do you see the opposite happening for Nigeria, I think, is where I've had three different parish priests uh, from Nigeria, one from Malawi, a couple from the Caribbean. I think Jamaica one, I can't remember where mm-hmm. the other. Um, is that is, there, is Catholicism thriving uh, on yeah. these other shores in a way and that's I've not here?
1: Been, I've been to a few African cult- countries, and I've seen specifically in Nigeria, my Lord, their their daily morning mass is a thousand people. Mm-hmm. Not, not, not Easter, not Christmas, not Mother's Day but it's daily mass, a thousand people, and it's not uh, unusual to spend two hours in the confessional hearing confessions. So they're in a different development. Catholicism is strong, it's rich there. Um, and, and I just want to say this because you you alluded to many Africans who are coming to the United States, because we are now becoming a missionary country. We need missionaries from different countries to come and to preach to us and to evangelize just as we did for them, or not us, but perhaps European places. Um, But let me just say this, that um, there's a misnomer. Um, Just because we might be the same hue, have the same melanin, uh, and have the richness of blackness in our skin. and and there are a lot of cultural similarities, but yet in all, in and yet and still, we are different culturally. Mm-hmm. Africans are not African-Americans. So when uh, without any type of enculturation, without any type of training, a bishop will bring in an African and say, you're going to now be the pastor of this African-American church because... Both communities are Black. I look at you, you're both Black-skinned, so it should work. It's frustrating for both people. It's frustrating for the Nigerians who are used to having packed churches. They're used to a lot of uh, participation in Bible study and devotions and a lot of piety. And in the African American culture, they're looking at this Nigerian priests, and, and and sometimes they can be very hierarchical. And and in the black community, women hold a strong role in our community, and, and and that's not the way it's seen in in Nigeria. So they have Nigerians have problem with these strong black women who are saying, "Father, you say I have to do that. Well, you know, we need to talk about. It. I'm ready to collaborate with you, but mm-hmm. you don't just tell me who I am and what I'm going to do. So." That's frustrating. The accent is different because some say we are, we find it difficult to understand what they're saying to us. And so so I think we do a disservice to African priests we bring to or any other cultural uh, different ethnicity to the Black community without first giving them An acculturation, which, by the way, if I can do a quick commercial, that's what the Institute for Black Catholic Studies is for. They need every bishop, every ordinary in this United States, send them to the Institute first before you put them in a black parish.
0: Hmm. Hmm. And also, just a lot of just language, right? Uh, right. It's not not just Africa. We have priests from Vietnam and Malaysia right. and all over the place. And for some older folks, older white folks, older black folks sitting yeah. in the pews, it's really hard to understand. Understand the dialect or the accent. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's talk about your book about Sister Thea Bowman. Uh, who is she?
1: Um. Sister Thea Bowman um, was a phenomenal Black Catholic woman rooted in the ancestry of African Americans in Mississippi, a strong, proud heritage. She was born into a middle-class family, although she was born in Mississippi, which was notoriously racist and notoriously Uh, bigoted against Black people. Uh, We know the history of of a lot of the Southern uh, states, but certainly Mississippi. And yet her father became a practicing internist, medical doctor. And as a physician, uh, he married a beautiful educator, a school teacher. um, And they actually... Uh, had Thea as their only child late in life. Uh, he was Dr. Bowman was forty three years old, and and uh, Mrs. Bowman was uh, thirty seven when Thea was born. Born into a, a, a somewhat of a middle class uh, family, but yet the Bowmans always was there to care for. The local black community in Canton, Mississippi. Now, initially, the Bowmans, uh, Dr. Bowman was United Methodist and uh, Mrs. Bowman was Episcopalian. Uh, it's interesting when they got married, they had to have both the United Methodist priest and Episcopalian, uh, a minister and Episcopalian priest at their wedding. Um, it was at the age of nine that the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration from the Recross, Wisconsin came to Canton Mississippi and by the invitation of the trinitarian fathers who were there to first of all build a school because the trinitarian fathers saw that black people needed they needed education and it had to be, begin at a young age so course, there were segregated schools. Blacks could not go to the the white Catholic school. So the sisters established a Catholic school and then a parish there in Canton for Black Catholics. Uh, Many of the people in Canton were not Catholic. And so it was through the school that that Thea uh, was so enthralled, and the education in public school for blacks were not that great. So the Bowman Center there, she became enthralled with the nuns and, and very uh, curious about Catholicism. So at nine years old, she chose to be a Catholic. Her parents wow. never converted at that point, it was later that they would convert to Catholicism. But she says, I want to be a Catholic. That's at nine years old. Wow. By 15, sister, the future sister Thea Bowman said, I want to be a nun. I want to go to La Crosse. I want to go to high school with the Franciscan sisters, of perpetual adoration in La Crosse, Wisconsin. First, the Bowman says, knowing the North and they were comfortable with the South and knowing that it was an all-white convent, Dr. Bowman said, Thea, or her name was Bertha Bowman, Bertha Elizabeth Bowman. That's her original name. He said to her, birth to- they're not gonna like you up at that convent in Wisconsin. And she said, daddy, I'm gonna make them like me. Yeah. And that, that's the kind of holy boldness she had. That's the, She was very, very brilliant, smart even as a child, very articulate, very in tune with, she called herself an old folks child. So she was very in tune with the stories, the culture, the songs, the expressions of, of the elders of black Catholics. So Thea has always been herself, but when she went through that whole that whole convent experience, she yearned for her home in the South, but appropriately she did all she could do to fit in and she assimilated in order to be a sister. That was her goal. Hmm. She had to endure racism, she had to deal with racist comments, she had to deal with crazy things like people trying to touch her hair and all that. Why mm. Why is your hair different? And, and, and it's kind of crazy because this was a very educated young lady, a lady who came from Providence. Her parents had wonderful college educated. The other white nuns were uh, daughters of milk farmers, you mm. know, and, and yet she was kind of looked at as an oddity there. And yet she persevered. Fast forward, made her vows, taught in the schools. In fact, her first assignment was at a Catholic grade school in La Crosse. And I like the story about when she uh, had parent-teacher conference. Uh, the the kids loved her. And uh, they loved her so much, they never, ever said to their parents what race she was. So when the parents came to meet this sister, Thea, One mother says, Well, Sally really loves you and she's learning so much, but she didn't ever tell us that you were black. Yeah. And Thea says, Did she learn something? (laughs) And he says, Yes. So what difference does that make? You know, so she really challenged, she's challenged throughout her life. Fast forward to that, she eventually. Uh, got her PhD, taught at the Viterbo uh, College in in La Crosse, Wisconsin, would later return uh, in later life to take care of her elderly parents and also be the uh, director of intercultural uh, awareness for the Diocese of uh, Jackson. She did that, and um, it was also in 1984 that she heard, uh, learned that her parents were both sickly to the point of death. In fact, 1984, they both died, but in the before their death, Thea found out that she herself uh, was diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, it was devastating for her. She decided that I'm going to live till I die. I'm not going to I have cancer, but I'm going to live until God calls me home. And people would ask, well, don't you want to get better? She says, of course I want to get better, but I want to be in God's perfect will. If God wants to heal me, God will heal me. And I would say, thank you, Lord. If God calls me home, I will say, thank you, Lord. One of the things Leah did, uh, she says, I believe that if God doesn't give me what I ask him, God's going to give me something better. And that, that's just a glimpse of her faith. Uh, but Chris, which she's probably most well-known, is two different incidents. One was uh word had gotten out about there, She had begun to preach and bring Catholicism, not just to Black Catholics, although she was an epitome of Black Catholicism. She always wanted cultures to come together, that we all have cultural gifts. And she believes that the answer to racism and, and, and bigotry in our country was that it was lack of contact, that mm-hmm. there's so much separation. But if we could get together and understand one another, then we can grow to love one another. So, so that was her message. And so she was always uh, promoting that. So word got out and it got to, uh, of all people, Mike Wallace at 60 minutes. And in 1987, he did a doc, a, a segment, a sixty-minute segment on a uh, twenty twenty minutes of sixty minutes on the sixty minutes show uh, on her. One of the most popular shows that sixty minutes ever broadcast. In fact, it had to broadcast it four times because people <laughs> kept calling, wanting to see it again. They couldn't believe this exceptional nun. Mike Wallace said before he did the interview, Oh my God, this is going to be the most boring piece I ever (laughs) do. Who cares about an evangelizing nun? You know, Yeah. when he met the, he gave, she gave him a run for his money. He said it was one of the most challenging (laughs) interviews he's ever done. Uh, Because Thea controlled that interview. If you ever see it, she was in, she was poised and she was in control of her narrative. Um, and, and so when that broadcast, people all over the country saw it, and, and Harry Belafonte saw it, and he said, I want to do a biopic of her life. It, people need to know about this tremendous woman. It never materialized, but he did choose Whoopi Goldberg was to play Sister Thea. Wow. So Sister Thea uh, flew out to California to meet with Whoopi Goldberg, and they spent a weekend together. And Sister Thea, one of her biggest gifts was not only as a great scholar and educator, she was a beautiful singer. And, and so I, I believe Whoopi was very enamored by Thea. That project, that biopic never happened, but mm-hmm. two years after Thea passed, all of a sudden, Sister Act comes out.
0: Yes, I remember that one.
1: Yeah. So I know I've been talking a lot, but that's that's you yeah. know that part. But well, the last part is that she spoke to the bishop. She was invited. That
0: one I saw. Right, that one oh. I saw on YouTube, and I'll put a link to that too. Yes,
1: right. Yeah, people need to see that. And so, um, she was invited to address the United States Catholic Bishops in June of 1988 uh, at Seton Hall in New Jersey she was asked to explain to the bishop what it meant to be Black and Catholic. And Thea took this task to heart and she gave a phenomenal, masterly crafted speech or oration on what it meant to be Black and Catholic. But it was was part sermon, part lecture, but a whole lot of church went into it. What I mean by that, she... As if she was doing a revival herself, she engaged the bishops at every moment. They held on to every word that she said. Uh, By the end of her her, uh, speech, she had... The bishops stand, cross arms, sing together. Mm-hmm. We shall overcome. Now you know her calls for canonization is is up is, is open now. You know, but they they say that her first miracle happened right there at that meeting where you got all <laughs> of these staunch Catholic bishops, yeah. to cross arms, sway side to side, and sing, "We shall overcome." That was a miracle in and of itself. Uh, but what I what I yes. Really appreciated is that they had tears in their eyes they gave her a thunderous applause and although they may have been of different ideologies, ecclesiologies theologies, Thea Bowman touched their hearts and convinced them of the beauty the value, the giftedness of black Catholics so that the church can truly be Catholic we are the church we are there to help promote us and our unity as one as the body of christ
0: yeah and also you know she's just a very physically beautiful uh woman but when you hear her voice it really is music and just the it's filled with with music not only when she's singing because she bursts into song in the middle of her talking or incorporating that but just just the the life and love of of her words she's a a very luminous luminous speaker
1: Very much so, Chris. You know, and and let me just say why I wrote, I was invited to write her biography was because I was her student. Uh, She taught me preaching. She taught me Black religion and the arts. uh, But beyond the classroom, she was a personal friend, a mentor, and ultimately, and, and we both claimed this for each other, Thea became, because I met Thea in 1984, and in 1985, my mother passed away, and in that, in April and in June, I was at the Institute for Black Catholic Studies as a, as a student, and I was in her class. And she knew my mother had died, and in many ways, Stadia Bowman became my spiritual mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, I referred to her as my mother, and she returned, referred to me as her son. So uh, it was a very, very close bond. So you can only imagine how I must feel, Chris, yeah. when I'm asked to write, first of all, write her biography uh, and to also to be working and consulting on her cause for canonization. If someone would have whispered to a young 23-year-old Maurice Nutt in her classroom, so one day <laughs> you're going to write this woman's biography, one day you're going to be uh, really championing her cause for canonization. um I would have thought they were crazy you know mm-hmm. i mean who am i to do this but my love for her is so great that i i would spend the rest of my living days promoting her sanctity her holiness her beauty and her value to all catholics and all people of god
0: yeah so tell us How does canonization work? Because I think some people imagine that saints have to be somebody who lived a long time ago or somebody who is without sin. And obviously that's not true because the only people without sin are Jesus and Mary. And yet we have thousands and thousands of saints. What does it even mean to be a saint? Um, Are we all saints? Uh, Are there, you know, many, many saints who are not recognized? We just, they're just, they just walk among us all the time. What's the Catholic Church's view on sainthood? How does it work?
1: Chris, I don't know why you invited me on this show. You just answered your own question.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, but let me let me just Because you have me. authority, Father. You have authority. But I'm just no, a guy.
1: Thank you. I'm gonna start calling you Dr. Chris. Thank you, Dr. Chris, because you really you painted a beautiful picture. We don't realize, but this very moment we are walking among saints. There we are all called to be holy through our own baptism. Uh, But yet we are walking among people who live ordinary Christian lives in an extraordinary manner. It's their devotion to God. It's their devotion to the teachings of Jesus Christ. It's it's their commitment to, to keep striving towards holiness and to bring the beauty and the wonder of God to all people. So, so, what I would say to that is, you ask, you know, do you have to be without sin to be a saint? No, you can't be human and be without sin. And, I, and uh, it's Sister Thea once said that a saint is a sinner who fell down but who got up again. Mm-hmm. So, in that little short statement, it means that. Even though I'm not perfect, I'm human, I have my sinfulness, my faults, my frailty, I will fall down. But it's not about falling down and staying down. It's about getting up and saying, God, with your help, I can try again. I can do better. I need you. And I think, you know, if you look at a saint, it's one who totally depends on God for everything. Mm-hmm. And that, that's how I look at it. So, so talking about the canonization process, uh, how does one begin the process of being declared a saint? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, there has to be an in-depth study of one's life. And be it a religious order or be it a diocese, uh, let's use Thea, for example, it's a diocese that took up her cause although. Her religious order, the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration, are very much uh, in support and, and highly pushing her cause for canonization. Is actually Bishop Joseph Kopass, uh the diocesan bishop of the Diocese of Jackson, who is spearheading and promoting her cause. I was asked, because I knew her well, and that I had written a, uh, a short biography on her Earlier and a few uh, of her quotes in my initial book, Sister Thea, it's called Thea Bowman in my own words, and, and meaning that her words I did. It's a book of quotations. So uh-huh. when he knew about that. Says you know enough about her, you knew her personally. I want you to examine everything about her life and tell me what you think. And so I basically wrote her, uh, wrote it all up and said to the bishop, uh, I think and I believe that Thea Bowman is worthy. To be canonized and be brought to the altars of God. Now I I must go back to say that typically you have to wait five years before you can open up a cause for canonization for someone. Actually, five years went by in her initial death in 1990. There was a group uh, that met, included some Black Catholic scholars and members of her religious order. They had actually three meetings, and at the end of that third meeting they thought that it was too soon, and that we should give it some time and wait. Well, that time extended to it was uh, actually twenty-eight years after her death, mm-hmm. uh, and so, uh, which is, we were right at the point after thirty years, uh, a, a cause that is introduced changes from a contemporary to a historic uh, cause. So. People have been dead thirty years plus. That's considered historical. Okay. Uh, hers was contemporary. So to say that, well, we once we did that. The uh, the bishop, and once I wrote the ex- explanation on why she should be canonized, the bishop uh, petitioned Rome. But now, if a diocesan bishop wants to make someone a saint, the USCCB is asking that they first bring it. To the whole body of bishops to be voted on. It's a collegial vote mm-hmm. because they feel that they, it should be a, a unity of the bishops saying that this American person is worthy of canonization. Well, well, just think about that, Chris. When they introduced the Bowman to the United States bishops, She was probably one of the only persons who had actually addressed the United States bishops. Mm -hmm. It was up for cause for canonization. And there were a a handful of people who were there that day when she spoke to them. And she received a unanimous uh, approval that her cause should move forward. Oh, wow. Is that unusual? I don't know. You know, mm-hmm. they made such a big deal about it being unanimous. Mm-hmm. I think that if if there's some votes that were against it, they don't they don't say it, they just say that it right. was passed. But mm-hmm. I noted that in and her her approval, they kept mentioning it was unanimous. Yeah. So so I take that as that was kind of unique so and unusual. Mm-hmm. So that happened in uh November of twenty eighteen. Uh, and also the cause open, uh, the investigation began, there is a whole team. There's a team that a person that goes around and, um, visits, visits everyone who knew her. So there, I can say this, there are about 90 people that were chosen to be interviewed. And there is a tribunal that includes a, uh, some, some Catholic theologians to look at her, her writings and her speeches, making sure they're free of heresy or error. There are historians, Catholic historians, who look at her life to see that she lived a heroic life and had heroic virtues. They write a position paper. So the position papers of the theologians and historians and all the transcriptions of, the, of those who are interviewed go into a big dossier called a positio. That positio is then sent to Rome and to the Congregation of the Causes of Saints and they will examine it. They will there's a, a postulator who presents it. They question that postulator, he or she, and they, they challenge them. There are people that say, you know, is this really true? Or they they have questions or maybe even doubts. Once they come to a decision, that is that the yes, is
0: that the devil's advocate
1: that yes yes that that the devil advocate plays a part in that the devil advocate really comes in in, in the uh, area of the miracles oh okay know? okay so so typically it's just the the uh, members of the congregation of the college saints that work in that initial phase once they give approval they do a recommendation letter to our holy father to the pope the Pope then will declare that person, uh, a person who is venerable now. They're serving of God just by uh, introducing the cause, but by the time that the Pope gives them approval of being worthy of imitation of, of their heroic virtues, they are then given a title venerable. So at that point, um, that that's the acknowledgement. And, and it's also, while it's local, at servant of God here in America, Venerable is known throughout the Universal Catholic Church. The next step is beatification. One uh, miracle, typically a medical miracle, has to happen. Uh, it has to be pretty much instantaneous, and it has to be long lasting, and it has to be proving that there was no medicine or there was any medical means that healed that person, but it's truly by God's grace and through the intercession of that particular person, they're made. Be, made, they're made blessed and they're beatified. What I love about what the church has changed on that, it's only taking one miracle to be blessed, and that beatification ceremony takes place in the diocese where that person died. Hmm. So someday when we are ready to declare Sister Thea Bowman blessed, it will happen in Jackson, Mississippi. Hmm. I pray, Chris, I'm alive to be there. I would love to, to celebrate my friend and my spiritual mother, as a blessed. The next phase would be, of course, saint. And again, that is a a miracle. And that miracle, one more miracle, that miracle has to occur after the person is named blessed. So say if you had two or three miracles to get them to bless, and you say, okay, I'm going to use this one for blessing. I'm going to save these others. I've already introduced it. I'm going to save them for saint. No, you can't, you can't stack up. It's not a frequent flyer. Gotcha. I mean, so
0: this has to do with the intercession, intercession in our mortal plane. After she has died and gone I, to heaven, she's still participating. You know, I pray to Sister Thea Bowman that I, my eyesight is restored and, pal, my eyesight is restored.
1: Right. Okay. And so once that person is named blessed, you have to pray to them, as, uh, seek their intercession as, as a blessed. Oh, that's interesting. And then you, then you're made a, then you're declared a saint if it's found without uh, question, uh, and that ceremony, as we know, takes place at St. Peter's Square in Rome. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the process. It's it, it's arduous, it's long, it's very detailed. It has to be done right. Uh, meaning that you have to follow the directions that the Congregation of Causes of Saints uh, ask for, and and you need a good persistent postulator. Someone, you know, there's there's probably thousands of cases that are at the Congregation of Causes of Saints, and you have to be persistent and making sure they continue to move the the uh, cause forward. So,
0: yeah, yeah, That's wonderful. Um, I think you've answered all my questions. Is there anything else we should we should talk about?
1: No, I just enjoyed this. I yeah. know that's a mouthful. I feel like I've been talking more than uh, you're asking a lot of questions. So well,
0: that's I, right. That's the, whole, that's the whole point. I have to find the interesting person and ask the good questions, and you, you then
1: <laughs> you have to explain things to us. So. I just am happy that you're um, – listeners are indulging me and i'm grateful that i've been invited to be here to to, to share with you about my life my ministry as a redemptress, and my love and my dedication to servant of god sister dia bowman
0: yeah and absolutely and i i think it reveals a lot about the small things that we all do you know i work as a teacher and um it's it's it, you sometimes you don't think you're doing a lot, but you might be doing a lot. And I think Sister Thea Bowman, who's such a towering and luminous uh, um, figure in our culture right now, she it was some nuns when she was little who who showed her what you know what she could be, or you know as and as a, as a little black girl living in the Jim Crow South. And she could she could aspire to some and she's not the only one right The same thing is true of like Stacey Abrams or Condoleezza Rice. They're all these little girls living in a terrible time in a in a difficult place, but through their family and through the example of loving teachers,
1: they became really important women they had, they did, and let me just say this so for your listeners that Thea is not the only African American there are five others that are under consideration for sainthood that is uh Pierre Toussaint, uh, Mother Mary Lang, uh, Mother uh, Henriette de Lille here in New Orleans, Father Augustus Totten and Julie Greeley, Julia Greeley. She's in uh, Denver. So I, I just think that's important to know that there are five, and I ask that you really your listeners to to learn more about them and, and seek their intercession. These were remarkable women and men of God. Uh, and for those who are interested in learning more about Sister Thea Bowman, I would uh ask that you go to her website and that is w Sister, the word sister spelled out, W. Sister dot com. And I ask you, Chris, to put that link on you this got it. the cast.
0: You got it. Yeah. And um I uh, I forgot what I was saying. I was saying something like um, how much how nice it is for teachers, or how much I fondly I remember my teachers, or how fondly you remember those redemptorist yeah. fathers who yeah. sort of um, gave you a, a an example. Um, thank you, thank you so much, Father Maurice. Would you kindly uh, say a blessing over our listeners and their families and our world?
1: Absolutely, I'll be glad to, Chris. Let us pray. Mighty God, I ask blessings upon all those who are under the sound of my voice. Lord God, I ask that you touch them in areas of their lives that need healing, that need restoration, that needs renewal. Lord, speak to those dark corners of their lives. Speak to those dead places that they find themselves in and and bring renewal. Bring reinvigoration to them, O God. I ask that you just bless all those who are trying to be almost good Catholics mm. and to allow them the grace and the mercy of your love. And I ask that our brother Chris be abundantly blessed for bringing this podcast to us. In the name of the Father, yes. Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Amen.
0: Chris O'Dinitz and Father Maurice Nutt recorded this conversation on June 17, 2022. It is the one-year anniversary of our newest national holiday, Juneteenth, celebrating the end of slavery in the United States of America. What was commonplace for millennia became criminal, changing the trajectory of our shared history. The arc is long, my friends, but it bends toward justice. And it is also the 50th anniversary of my parents' marriage. An auspicious day for me and my family. Happy anniversary, Mom and Dad. Our music is from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band. Their website is www.gscoasterband.com. Our logo, the image of the dog, is taken with the kind permission of the Dominican friars of England, Scotland, and Wales. From their website, www.english.op.org. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. This is Christ the King, whom shepherds, God, and angels sing.